0: Father, we thank you for this opportunity that the blood of our Lord and Savior has purchased for us to gather in the name of Jesus Christ and to exalt him upon the praises of his people, to acknowledge and exalting and lifting up his name that there is no other name whereby we might be saved, to acknowledge as we extol and praise our Lord and Savior that he alone has made sufficient payment for the burden of our sin and that in his broken body and in his shed blood there is redemption for all who have placed their faith and trust in that atoning sacrifice. We thank you, Lord, that we serve a risen and ascended Messiah who has died for us but has defeated the grave and death itself. And so will we in him. We look forward, Lord, to the glorious future prepared for those who love you, who have received this glorious redemptive work, regeneration, to the heavenly home when all will be fully, completely, manifestly redeemed and remade, and the perfect intention of your creative plan from before time began. In the meantime, Lord, we thank you that you give us a call and a purpose to glorify, to magnify, and to testify to your name. We pray this day that you would equip us for that call through the proclamation of your word. Teach us, Lord, from the testimony of old on into the new, how we might conform to the image of Christ and proclaim him more clearly and boldly to those who are yet lost and dead and their trespasses and sins. In all of this, may you be magnified and your kingdom advanced. In Jesus' name, in his holy name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. This morning, we turn to the Holy Scriptures, and I pray that our hearts will be open, even as our Bibles are, to Genesis 35. Turn with me, if you would, as you're able, and let us consider today a sermon entitled Jacob's Pillars. As you recall, maybe you've been keeping track, as we've gone through the count, the testimony of Jacob, we now come to pillar number four. It seems that there is something significant in this practice that the covenant's son embarks upon or engages in at uh, these different times in his life and calling where the Lord does something significant and Jacob marks that event by setting up what we've called this monolithic stone. I think we'll find indeed that is the case in the summary message as we take all four pillars into view. We've covered three in passing and we've reached number four now, but it seems appropriate in light of where we are in the text to do a summary message on the pillars of Jacob and what they mean to him and beyond him and what they point to indeed to Christ. The aim of this morning's message therefore is to chart the progress of God's promises inspiring the worship of his people. This is really what the intention of the altars were that the patriarchs would build whether they were a monolithic stone or an altar upon which a sacrifice would be you know offered to the Lord. They were indeed to chart the progress to mark so that we do not soon forget, neither them nor their lineage, the progress of God's promises, thus inspiring the worship of his people, his people down through the ages. And these monuments in some sense yet remain. And so to them we return today in, in God's scriptures to offer our own a praise for the things that are there recorded and also to increase our understanding of what God has done through the ages As you're able and out of reverence, would you stand for the reading of God's Word today? Let us consider the fourth installment of the pillar narrative, if you will. This is Genesis 35. We'll begin in 13 and read through 20. Here is the Word of God. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Verse 16, Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Jacob sets up pillars, four of which we've noted. Pillars three and four were in our text we just read this morning. We've a meaning, or the significance in a summary phrase as follows for these pillars. What are they? They are monolithic monuments. Monolithic just means one solid piece, solid piece of stone. Of course, monument is something to remember something else by. A monolithic monument of covenant, remembrance, and testimony. That's what these pillars are. A one-piece commemoration or memory stone, a monument of covenant, remembrance, and testimony. The use of stones to signify the important and the permanent is not unique to Jacob. We are reminded that the Lord Himself has used stones, even writing upon them with His own finger. Let me pause there just a moment for an application. What we write in stone signifies what is important and permanent to that culture, the things that they value above others. You can, and in certain cultures that had a high watermark of acknowledging what truly is important and permanent, what may be etched in those stones is solid and worth remembering and returning to. To some degree, this is the case in our culture indeed. I've seen pictures, I'm sure you have as well, above the Supreme Court building in Washington, D.C. There is indeed, in places like this, a picture carved into stone of Moses with two tablets in hand. Representing the standard of law, representing the plumb line or benchmark of righteousness, whereby, in the meaning of what this permanent and significant event and symbol represents, meaning that the responsibility of all who serve within the hallowed halls of that seat of judgment must conform to the standard of God's righteousness, and if not, they ought to be removed. Do you see how far we've fallen? from what we've etched in stone? You see how far we have fallen from that which is the, the word of God deems truly important and permanent? You know, there's been a movement through the ages by the seculars, the godless among us who really don't consistently affirm that there's no God, but in their rebellion claim that they have the right to say so. And there they go about, using the vocal cords that God has given them, the breath that he has ordained to fill their lungs in his common grace, saying there is no God or there ought to be a separation of so-called church and state. And we need to blind our eyes from that which we once embellished in stone, the permanent and the important word of God. We recognize in our society the purpose of a monolithic stone and how needful it is for us today. It is time for us to turn back because we have forgotten in our sin as a nation the importance of what t- stands the test of time and that which all other ideas are to be judged. This is the, purf- this is the purpose, even in, in an application, of the monolithic monuments of covenant remembrance and testimony. This is what Jacob intended to do when God had moved, so moved as to reveal himself and proclaim his word, which stands forever and his promises, which will not change. The ones that God swore to his grandfather by himself that he would accomplish. It was worthy of a permanent memorial. The Use of stones, therefore, is used to signify the important and the permanent. This is not unique to Jacob. As I mentioned before, we're reminded uh, that the Lord himself wrote his law on two sets, or on two stones, a set of stones. So young people, what do we call what God wrote with his very finger on two stones? What did he write on there? What would that be? Thanks, Isaac. The Ten Commandments. The very finger of God, two stones, the Ten Commandments were engraved by that sovereign author and in then giving them as a symbol of permanence and importance to his people by his servant Moses. In this instance, the children of God, or excuse me, additionally, at the entrance into the promised land under Joshua, this moment was accompanied by a setting of stones as well. Perhaps an event uh, less readily available in most people's minds, but, never, but no less important. Deuteronomy 27 and 28 record these instructions. God tells Moses, when the people enter the land, they are to set up a memorial. And a ceremony in stone. In this instance, the children of Israel are commanded to, quote, set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. You shall write on them all the words of this law when you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, close quote. That's Deuteronomy 27, 2 through 3. So there again, in this example... The people were to take a permanent form. The historians tell us that this would be a permanent monument technique, set up these stones, put this permanent plaster on them, and then write upon those stones the foundation of the covenant, the foundation of their society, and the standard whereby they themselves and they individually and as a people ought to be judged. These were the permanent plaster monuments. These were the engravings over their Supreme Court, if you will, these were the things that were permanent and, and, and were to be etched, therefore, upon the stone and, even more importantly, etched upon their heart. And if, they were, and if they were to forget, they ought to return to those and say to themselves, why were these written here in the first place? And we see by this standard how, sh- how far short we have fallen. We must return to that which is written in stone, that which God has commissioned, his word which never fails, the God who never changes. But indeed, his is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In our text today, as Jacob enters the promised land himself, he sa- and sojourns therein, according to the covenant promise, he too has marked his journey with pillars of remembrance. Isn't that interesting? It's hundreds of years later, the children of Israel would enter the promised land, and they would set up stones when they did so, just as Jacob did when he entered the promised land, and in our text today, set up indeed two pillars to mark the significance of the occasion. Each occasion presents, furthermore, in our study today, as we'll consider the four pillars of Jacob, each occasion presents a trial or a challenge, threatening the life and calling of the patriarch in some way. However, in each circumstance, God has shown himself more powerful, and the promises of God win the day. However, Jacob's faith is strengthened, even in in light of these trials, his faith is strengthened with each divine intervention of the Lord along his way. Therefore, these moments of salvation inspire Jacob and his family to commemorate, to mark down, to memorialize the mercies of God and to do stone with a touchstone or a landmark. And I submit to you this thought. These stones remain standing today. Now the physical stones are long since lost to history, but these stones remain standing in the Word of God. That is to say, in a very real sense, we can visit these stones as heirs of Jacob, as children of Jacob spiritually, as the lineage of Christ and the covenant people has come into its own. We can go back to these stones as we read these scriptures and realize their intent. And our, and our faith thereby can be strengthened as well. Though the rocks themselves have long since been lost to history, nevertheless, that testimony permanently stands in God's holy word, which we are reading today. Therefore, saints, let us return to these signal moments as the spiritual lineage of Jacob and glorify God for His grace, for His faithfulness, for His mercies preserving His messianic line his promises, his covenant. Let us praise him for his watch care, for our own covenant forebears. If there was no Jacob, there would be no Jesus Christ. If there was no lineage of Jacob, there would be no Jesus Christ. But God has preserved his plan of redemption right down to each specific detail. And these stones were Jacob's reminder and can be ours as well of the sovereignty and the grace of God to do exactly that. These milestones also kind of serve as a summary to track Jacob's uh, travels to date. And so to these four pillars, we turn in our message today. Let me give you a heading. Here's the heading. Jacob sets up pillars at, number one, the gate of heaven. That would be in chapter 28. So if you want to turn there, that'll be the first pillar we consider at length. And a partially review from a prior message, of course. Jacob sets up a pillar at the gate of heaven. Secondly, he sets up a pillar... At the Laban Covenant Altar, so covenant with Laban and an altar, that'd be chapter 31. Thirdly, Jacob sets up a pillar, we've read this text already, at the Bethel Renewal Altar. where The covenant is renewed at Bethel, he sets up a pillar there. And the fourth pillar, we, hear, we have heard, is at the grave of Rachel. So these are the four places, and four occasions for Jacob's pillar construction. Let me give you a little framework for the subpoints under each of these. I submit to you today that each pillar occasion is accompanied by the following. Number one, there's a trial or an ordeal that Jacob faces. Each pillar occasion is attended by a challenge, a real difficulty, a test for Jacob. Secondly, each pillar occasion is attended by divine intervention a movement of God, a revelation of the Lord, a confirmation of His covenant and word. And thirdly, each occasion is marked by worship, by an acknowledgment of these things by Jacob, the covenant son, and hence his pillar construction and his uh, further acts of worship that we read in these texts. So again, under the gate of heaven, we have an ordeal, we have divine intervention, and we have worship. This is Genesis 28. The scene opens in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. It's interesting, a little ambiguous, but intentionally so in the text. He came to a certain place. The author means to draw you in. Moses is kind of giving you a curious detail and leaving it a little bit fuzzy. I wonder what is this certain place. Well, we will soon find out. That this isn't just any old place, this isn't a truck stop for your camels on the way to Pat and a Aram, this isn't just a wayside rest on the interstate of the ancient world, this will prove to be the house of God, the gate of heaven. So what will Jacob use to commemorate this moment? Well, that's hinted at that as well says, he came to the certain place, he stayed there that night because the sun had set, and then taking one of the stones of the place. Kids, what did he do with the stone first? He laid, it under his head. laid it under his head. That is correct, Theo. Because the sun had set, taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. You guys know what happens next. He dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder. We've come to call this heaven's staircase touching earth. There was a ladder set up on the earth and on the top of it, the top of it reached heaven and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, signifying in your translation Yahweh, the high covenant keeping glorious name of God, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Then he goes on to confirm his promises that he had made to Abraham and now is reiterating to Jacob, grandson, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust. He'll give him this land in which he lies and his offspring will be numerous. He will bring him back to this land. We have the Emmanuel promise. And how does Jacob respond? He says, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. So he woke up and realized, Jacob awoke not just from physical sleep, but from spiritual sleep, from a stupor, from a slumber. He was living in God's world. He was sleeping on a pillow in God's own house. He was directly underneath, if you will, the gate of heaven. And he was in his fear and in his panic, running from his brother. He didn't realize it. He was afraid and said, different kind of fear than the fear of Esau. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. The gate of heaven. So Jacob took the stone that he had placed, put under his head, and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, and the name of the city was Luz. At the first, Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I go, will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. Yahweh shall be my God, Jacob says. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. That's what Bethel means. And of all that you give me, I will give a tenth to you. It would be a tithe. What's the ordeal that, was, that had preceded this occasion? Well, you guys remember, Jacob was running away. What glorious reassurance. What promise of hope that this dream represented. The Emmanuel, I will be with you, God with you promise was given to him in this incredible heaven's open dream and staircase touching earth. But this came to a frantic, fearful, desperate, panicked guy who was running head over heels because his brother hated him. Verse 41, prior chapter, Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother. And, of course, Rebecca hears these words, warns her son, and sends him to Haran. When the coast is clear, I'll send word for you, she says in so many words. But we know from the rest of the story that for 20 long years, Jacob remains in the employ of his uncle and father-in-law, Laban. And so this fear of exile with the murderous brother chasing him was the challenge that Jacob faced at this time. It was the fear that drove him as a fugitive and an exile to leave the familiar behind. And the situation was pretty dire. You had Esau, who was known as a hunter with great skill and weapons and could manage to negotiate the wilderness just fine. And then you had Jacob, who's described as a quiet guy who lives and is a tent dweller, which is kind of a nice way of saying a mama's boy. Esau was daddy's boy. He was the hunter. He was the, the guy who got, the, you know, hairy and muscular and could bring game back on his shoulder. I grew up with the picture Bible. I don't know if you guys did as well or some of you kids read the picture Bible, but do you remember those pictures of Esau? Big burly, hairy guy, and he's got like an elk over his shoulders or an antelope or whatever. He comes strutting back in. He's like, hey, guess what, Dad? Only took me three hours this time. I tracked this guy right across the gorge, found him on the mountain over there in Hebron, took him on the first shot. Meanwhile, Esau's, you know, uh, washing the dishes inside Rebekah's tent, thinking, wow, I I could never do something like that. I hope he shares with me some cuts of meat. Meanwhile, he's just there chilling with his mom. So you can see how this situation would set the circumstances for an extreme ordeal, trial, or hardship. The wrong guy to make mad, the wrong guy to tick off, the guy who's good with weapons and knows his way in the wilderness is now hot on the tail, Jacob assumes, of the mama's boy who likes to dwell in tents. And here he is in the open air with a rock for a pillow. And what will he do now? The answer comes by way of divine intervention. We move from ordeal, Jacob facing the prospect of exile without having any of the means at his disposal to provide for himself (coughs) in the wilderness. We go from that ordeal to a divine intervention, a promise Whereby, and whose delivery comes by way of the heavens opened and a staircase touching ground and the assurance of a name and safe travels, of a promise, of an inheritance, and of a land. When we covered this text before, we noticed how it was like contra Babel, the opposite of Babel. The people in Genesis 11, they also felt insecure. All will be scattered. You know, they're facing the ordeal of a harsh life in a fallen world. Let's bind ourselves together. And with the strength and ambition of Esau, let us build a a staircase up to heaven and secure for ourselves a name. Did that work, kids? Did the Tower of Babel make everybody safe and secure? What happened? It It fell down? It probably did. God certainly confused their languages and the project fell apart, proving that there is no hope, security, or salvation in the ambition or the strength or the collective efforts of humanistic man. But there is hope of salvation. And it can save one exile deserving uh, of, you know, his brother's anger for sure, if not the murderous intentions and so forth. On the run, there is safety to be found. But it's not in climbing your way to glory or securing for yourself a name. It's when heaven's staircase touches ground. God intervenes. And by his promise, by his Messiah, Jesus Christ is that stairway touching ground. The angels of God, which are his messengers to accomplish his holy will, attending the purposes for which he's intended. And his elect one, his saved one, although a sinner, and a pitiful one at that, Jacob, can find assurance that the gate of heaven is open to him through the future Messiah who would come from his own bloodline, Jesus Christ. And therein, He can rest assured at nightfall. And so how do you respond when something like this happens to you? Well, you take that pillow and you set it up as a monolithic stone of covenant remembrance and testimony. In the morning, Jacob took the stone that had been under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. This, saints, is an act of worship. Now Jacob, insecure and ill-equipped as such as he was, probably had only one thing of value to his name as he ran away with a little more than the clothes on his back, and that would be that precious oil. So as he poured that oil out on that stone, what was he recognizing? We've proclaimed recently from Psalm 119, the Lord is my portion, not this last hundred dollar bill in my wallet, Not my ability to, you know, evade my brother who is good at the wilderness, but the Lord who opens up the gates of heaven and secures my hope of eternal life by his covenant means and promises, by his redemptive gospel. Therein is my hope. And so when Jacob's faith is stirred to realize that that's where his security and salvation lies, he has the ability to worship the Lord by pouring out his last means of financial ability to travel between nations upon that pillar, which was a testimony to him and to his children that God alone saves. That offering of oil, that vow of allegiance to the one true God, that recognition that this is the place of God's dwelling. If God can erect a stairway between heaven and earth, then there is a place where God and man can be reconciled. There is a house of God, a place of his dwelling with the sinner, but it is only accomplished by God's right hand by his mercy, by his grace, by his Messiah. And so this is the first pillar message, is it not? Set up at the gate of heaven, in spite of the ordeal of exile in a fallen and sinful world, the Lord intervenes. Just as Jesus said to Nathan, from now on you'll see the heavens open, the gates of heaven flung open, and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, a direct reference to this latter picture in Jacob's dream. It is in Jesus that our exile as sinners in a fallen world, it is through Him that an intervention has been stationed. we have hope. Therefore, we saints can pour out our offering to the Lord. Even as we give, even of our financial means, we can relate to Jacob, can we not? When he says, this shall be the Lord's house, and of all that you give me, I will give a tenth to you. If I have assurance of salvation and eternal life, such that the heavens are open through the ladder that you provide above my head, and the ministers of God's justice, the ministers of God's comfort, are dispatched on my account, then truly the Lord is my portion. And this let this stone be a testimony that the gates of heaven hold out hope for me through the covenant promises of Almighty Yahweh God. Second Pillar. Turn with me to Genesis thirty one for this account. Jacob sets up a pillar at the gate of heaven, and then secondly, at the Laban covenant altar. So the covenant with Laban, and then the altar and so forth. Jacob sets up a pillar here too. This is interesting. This is right on the threshold of Canaan. He's going into the promised land. And these are a few of the events we begin reading in verse 44. Come now, says Laban, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones, and they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it uh, Sahadutha, Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today, therefore he named it Galid and Mizpah. For he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight, if you oppress my daughters or you take wives besides my daughters. Although no one is with us, see God as witness between you and me. This is an agreement that a pagan, shyster, you know, deceiver, wicked man, Laban in many ways, and Jacob came to, and, and this is really an uncommon kind of resolution. God brings peace between two fractious parties in a pretty incredible way. And this pillar represents peace through the prince of peace when it otherwise seems impossible. And Jacob responds in a similar way in verse 53, Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Verse 54, Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Much of Jacob's early life is marked by running away from bad guys. So Esau was, you know, his escape escape plan number one was to run away from Esau. Escape plan number two was to run away from Laban. Jacob was good at making enemies. Laban, ah, make no mistake about it, he would spare no tool at his disposal to get his laborer back. His flocks had prospered for some 20 years under this guy, and now their fortunes are tied together in as much as Jacob has married two of his daughters. Laban doesn't see it as two distinct families. He sees that Jacob owes him something, and you know, in return for his daughters, he's going to milk this deal for all it's worth, that he's going to get every ounce of Jacob's dedication, and he's going to twist the circumstance to make Jacob look guilty, and he'll even use force, I'll bet, if necessary, to get him back. Jacob runs away from this circumstance, and I imagine he's even slower now. Why? Because he has flocks and herds and cattle and servants, and he gets a little jump start, but, you know, 14 days or something, Laban catches up to him, and now there's a confrontation. Well, Jacob's worst fears were not realized. Laban actually seeks to make a covenant with him. Begrudgingly and against his otherwise his other preferences, Laban says, let's have peace. Why did this happen? You see, the occasion or the uh, ordeal, the trial that Jacob faced in this instance was fleeing Laban. And this, by the way, this running away from the place of bondage It's a typological, it's a picture, a sort of precursor to the slavery and bondage of Egypt. That is to say, there would come a time in the future where the children of Jacob would be fleeing an oppressive master as well. And they would be preserved along the path, even though that master was stronger and faster and boasted chariots more than any other empire at the time. But You guys remember what happened. In that exodus, leaving the exile and heading to the promised land, God intervened. He collapsed the Red Sea upon the armies of Pharaoh and preserved the roadway, the safe passage for his people, the children of Israel, 400 years later unto the promised land. Well, God intervened in this moment too. And we see it in a different way, but no less profound. Verse 24, same chapter. But God came to Laban the Armian in, in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. <clears throat> be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Kids, have you ever considered doing something really mischievous, really naughty, and then come to find out your dad was just right there in the room, and he gives you that look, and that warning, and suddenly you've lost all your ambition, you've lost all your desire, you have no more inspiration to do that that wicked deed. Why? Because of power and authority, someone who has the ability to hold you accountable has corrected you on your path to do something wrong. I think we all know how that feels. Well, Jacob uh, knows how that feels, but now Laban knows how it feels too. Imagine you're sleeping at night, and you're making good time and catching up to who you see as your indentured servant, your son-in-law, you're almost there. And then that last night before you encounter him, you're shaken awake by the Lord Himself. If I shake my kids awake and want to get them going in the morning, you'll may have grab their leg or their, their shoulders, like, wake up, wake up. And, you know, it's kind of uh, disturbing, you know, literally out of your sleep. What, what, what? You know, like, we all know what that's like too, right? Being aroused from super stupor. Imagine if the Lord himself shook you awake and said, you better not lay a finger on my covenant son. In so many words, Jacob. And this was enough to bring Laban quaking in his boots to a complete change of mind, complete change of plans. Thus, little no, unbeknownst to Jacob at the time, God had intervened. It requires faith. To believe that even when you don't see it, God is moving on your behalf for the purposes that He has prepared in advance for you to walk in. Sometimes you can watch the Lord move and you see the seas collapse, as it were, on your enemies. Other times it happens in a way that is unbeknownst to you, but the call is to walk by faith and not by sight. And Jacob was called to walk by faith that God would preserve him along the way according to his promises. The call for us, as it was for Jacob, is not, not to let that blasphemous thought come into our mind. Maybe God won't keep his word. Never let it be said. His word ought to be etched in stone to remind us that it is permanent and will not be changed. And his word ought to be etched with a diamond on our hearts so that we don't forget. that in spite of the ordeals that we face, it is permanent and cannot be changed. So once again, Jacob has experienced the delivering power of Yahweh, subduing an enemy. He subdued, uh, so in facing exile, God has intervened on his behalf, and facing his enemy Laban, God has intervened on his behalf, and so Jacob worships. And in chapter 31, this is how the, it's recorded. Verse 54, Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. And this, of course, after he had set up that stone, Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. So this pillar, pillar number two, this monolithic monument of covenant remembrance and testimony, it reminded Jacob and his family that God will intervene and subdue our enemies if they stand in the way between us and the purposes for which he has prepared us. The scriptures, of course, call death the last and most formidable enemy. But what has our Messiah done? He has defeated death in his resurrection. And so now nothing stands in between us and the promised land of glory if we are in him. Kids, remember this. Some of you will be baptized in a few weeks as we're planning a baptism service. And one of the pictures of baptism is that God ushers us safely through the waters of judgment so long as we're in our ark Jesus Christ. We go through the waters of baptism unscathed, that's the picture, because Christ is our salvation. Just as Jacob went through the troubled wilderness unto Canaan from Paddan Aram, unscathed because of God's covenant promises to him. So in spite of enemies, God shows himself faithful. He intervenes and he has defeated all enemies in Jesus Christ. The seed of the woman has stomped on the serpent's head. And there are no more enemies left to defeat. There's just history unfolding that manifests that defeat in time. But it is finished, saints. And that's what this monolithic stone represents in Ghalid, in Mizpah. It's that all enemies, even the strongest, most formidable, and most pressing, when God intervenes to preserve His people, His will and intentions, they cannot thwart what He will do. So this is worthy of a feast and a sacrifice. When we gather at the Lord's table, it is a feast. And when we gather at the Lord's table, there's a sacrifice that is signified there as well. Jacob's feast and sacrifice was something like communion in the wilderness. He had experienced the salvation of the Lord, so it was worthy of a table spread in the presence of his enemies because quite literally God had given him a table that is peace and provision even in the presence of his enemies, Laban. Just as God had done in His grace and mercy for Lot when he ate with the angelic beings prior to the destruction of the city from which he would be saved, and Abraham as well, ate and shared table, communion, and feast and fellowship with these servants of the Lord. Same picture there. God prepares a table, a provision and peace in the presence of our enemies if we are in Christ. Pillar number three. Jacob sets up a pillar, the gate of heaven, at the Laban Covenant Altar, and number three, in Bethel, the Bethel Renewal Altar. And last week, we call, we entitled our message, Bethel Revisited, because this is Jacob circling back to where he had been in chapter 28. Why is he going back? Well, he needed the reminder. Again, that's the purpose of these monuments, these covenant stones and altars, So what is the occasion first of all? What is the ordeal and the trial that Jacob faces? Well, this is a doozy. In 34 verse one, now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, seized her, and lay with her and humiliated her. This is the violent lust of the flesh in this sinful and depraved land, violating the daughter dishonoring her in this act, and now Jacob has experienced his own daughter taken advantage of by the wicked people of the land. This is a heavy trial indeed. This is quite the ordeal, but it doesn't stop there. Not just a family tragedy, but horrific sin adds insult to injury. Verse 25, on the third day when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor, the son of Shechem. With the sword, they took Dinah out of Shechem's house. and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and herds and donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. What does Jacob say? to his sons. Verse 30, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. But numbers are few and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. They said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Once again, Jacob is afraid, this time that his sons, in their vengeance, their murderous rampage, have uh, made him a stench in the land and have incited the surrounding peoples to make war with Jacob. This guy's a real problem. His kids are lunatics. They went and burned and tore down the whole city. If we don't destroy this guy and this crazy tribe, we might be next. And you can almost hear the Canaanites and the Perizzites sharpening their swords, shink, shink, shink in the distance. And that's what's going through Jacob's mind at this time. And he is quaking in his boots once again. What's the thing? What what should he do? 35.1, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Where did he send him? To the place where heaven's gates had been opened. The staircase dream had came to him. The promise of Emmanuel, I will be with you. The promise of land and lineage had been granted to him in the first place. Go back to that place where you set up a pillar. And your uh, grandfather had set up an altar. You need to be reminded of what is permanent and powerful, of what is most important. Your heart needs to be re-etched with my promises. Go back. So Jacob does. He says to his family, let us go up to Bethel after calling them to repentance so that I may make an altar to the Lord who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. See his heart changing? They gave up their foreign gods. Jacob dispatches of them like the refuse that they were. And in verse 5, as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. There it is, divine intervention. God struck terror in the hearts of those who were sharpening their swords, now stopped, you know, in an instant, And suddenly they were struck with fear in their hearts and they decided we better not touch God's anointed. Why? Because the God of the covenant, the one who has the power to open the gates of heaven and to set a staircase between his presence and a sinner and to accompany him on the way by dispatching angels to accomplish his will, has struck fear in the hearts of Jacob's enemies. And so here we are again, a tragedy and horrific sin plagued the people. Yet there's a call to repentance. And so the people turn. Jacob calls his family to put away their idols, to turn back to the living God. They do. And God responds by striking fear in their enemies. And he responds by reinforcing. He renews and confirms the covenant in verses 9 through 15. And God went up from him in that place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured out oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel, reminding his soul of where he was, why it was important, a place deserving and worthy of a monument so he does not soon forget the covenant remembrance and testimony he needs to draw his attention and his family to. And again, in this act of worship, setting up pillar number three, what does he do once again? He pours out that oil. And it's interesting, Moses, in authoring this text, he describes this act of worship as also a drink offering. The drink offering was part of the consecration of the priesthood That we read more of in the law. Exodus 29 verses 40 through 46, drink offerings included, uh, they were included in consecration rituals of the temple priesthood. And these things attended the promise of deliverance from bondage and fellowship with their God. Jacob is serving of something as a priestly role here, a type in offering this drink offering. He also serves as something of a priestly role and type when he calls his family to change their garments to render themselves presentable because they are about to enter into the promise or uh, into the presence of God where nothing holy is worthy or nothing dirty is worthy of his holy name. And so this is the message of the Bethel renewal altar and that stone. We have one more stone today. We'll cover it in more length in future weeks, but this one's set up at the grave. Of Rachel, Jacob's final pillar is set up at Rachel's grave. We continue in our same text, verse 16 and following. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor. She had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Onai. By the way, that means son of sorrow or son of my pain, son of my sorrow. That's the name and lament of a mother who's weeping for her children. But his father called him Benjamin. Jacob's name for his last boy, son of my right hand is what that means. Verse 19, so Rachel died. This is the beloved covenant bride. She dies. She was buried on the way to Ephrath. Notice this parentheses, that is Bethlehem. Verse 20, and Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. What is the ordeal, what is the trial that Jacob is facing here? Well, certainly it's death. Deborah, the beloved nurse of Rebecca, has died in verse 8. Deborah died Rebecca's nurse. She was buried under an oak beneath, below Bethel. So he called its name Elan Bekuth, which means oaks of weeping. In childbirth, With the last of the covenant children, so Rachel dies, and the beloved bride is buried in Bethlehem real close by. Jacob sets up a pillar. Shortly, in the same text, Isaac will breathe his last, his father. Verse 29, death has visited the home, and this is quite the ordeal. This is quite the test, quite the trial. Nevertheless, God intervenes. The birth of Benjamin is something of a miracle. It's an answer to prayer. All the way back in chapter 30, the name of Joseph was also a prayer. Increase, addition is what Joseph means. The hope of Joseph in the heart of Rachel was that his birth would give way to another son should God be merciful and gracious. And so her prayer was answered at Bethlehem and another son of the covenant was born. This birth of Benjamin represented hope that the covenant would continue in spite of death. There was hope in a miraculous birth in spite of the wages of sin. Hope in a miraculous birth in Bethlehem in spite of the wages of sin. Can you see these details in the text coming into full flourishing in the future? Now, the only act of worship that's recorded here is Jacob setting up stone number four, which is, once again, him saying in so many words, symbolically, The promises of God are stronger than death. Stronger than death. How could that possibly be true? Well, the answer comes with another baby who would be born in around that same location. And that worship in Bethlehem would commence thousands of years later. You can read of this in Matthew chapter 2 and Luke chapter 2. The angels in the heavens and the dignitaries from afar, above and below They offer worship to a Messiah, a child of the covenant, a miraculous birth born in Bethlehem, who would fulfill the promise that the covenant is stronger than death. And this is the scripture's way of pointing us through these devices to the Messiah to come, one of the many ways the scriptures do so. In my notes, I summarized it this way. Though no additional acts of worship are recorded in Bethlehem at this time, at the same location, thousands of years later, the birthplace of the son of my sorrow, marked by Rachel's weeping, becomes the birthplace of Jesus Christ, the anointed Messiah, Savior. At this pillar that Jacob set up in this location, angels above and foreign dignitaries from afar assemble to worship the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, just as we have assembled in this place to do the very same thing. The stones that Jacob set up reminded his soul, and they're there standing in Scripture to remind you that the promises, the covenant, the gospel, and Jesus Christ is stronger than exile, is stronger than enemies, is stronger... Than family tragedy or horrific sin, and finally and ultimately is stronger than death. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this message of hope that we see in your scriptures fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who defeated the last enemy in his great resurrection. Lord, remind us in our, when our souls waver and in the ordeals that we face that our promises that in Christ are assured because we are His children. And those covenant assurances belong to us. Lord, we thank you that for all who are in Christ, that we can look to these places of your divine intervention and see hope for our own future in Christ. For those who may be hearing this message and do not have this assurance, as they are yet dead in their trespasses and sins, we pray that you would use the proclamation of your word and gospel to move them to repent, to turn from their idols, to bury them under the, uh, the tree as it were, to throw them out as refuse and to turn to Yahweh, the one true God who became flesh and dwelt among us in Jesus Christ and defeated every enemy, our own sin, and even death, the wages of that sin and His mighty work on Calvary, and His mighty work of ascension. It is that name we praise and glorify and seek to be conformed to, May you be magnified, Jesus, in the proclamation of your word and the application of the same. May you be glorified in our lives, increasingly changed into your image. It's in your name we pray. Amen.